0: Our thanks to SureTest and CTG for helping us to end childhood cancer.
1: Today on This Week Health. I think there's a question, can you get through 2023 where maybe you're back to just barely at break given in 2024 and beyond.
0: Welcome to Newsday, a This Week Health newsroom show. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health. A set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. Special thanks to our Newsday show partners, and we have a lot of them this year, which I am really excited about. Cedar Sinai Accelerator, ClearSense, CrowdStrike, Digital Scientists, Optimum Healthcare IT, Pure Storage, SureTest, Towsight, Lumion, and VMware. We appreciate them investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now onto the show. All right, it's newsday. And today we're joined by Jeff Blanding executive vice president at Optimum healthcare IT.
1: Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks Bill. Good to see you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation. There's a lot going on from big time things like Kaiser and Geisinger coming together and also announcing as part of that new entity that they're going to acquire up to five additional entities and spawn a new 30 billion dollar health entity That's no big deal i mean that's a new 30 billion dollar health system i remember our health system was about seven and a half billion at one point that was considered moderately
1: large what what's a large health system now i mean that's like a that's like a jumbo health system right like like maybe 10 billion is the cutoff for well, large, but I then mean, there's the 30 the I think 30 billion is bigger than Providence, yeah. Same neighborhood, at, at least. But I mean, it'll also be interesting to see like, does that get through regulatory approval?
0: Yeah, I think it does. There's almost no overlap. So. They sort of said, Hey, we're focusing on population health and organizations that look like that. And there's a bunch of them that they're not going to get, like Sharp Healthcare matches the criteria, it would never get through because Kaiser and Sharp make up too large of a percentage of the San Diego market. Yeah. And so so that would never happen. And there's probably a couple others that might fit the bill, but they'll look at it from a regulatory standpoint and go, yeah, that's not going to work. Whereas a Geisinger, I'm not aware of any overlap. I don't think there's any overlap at all.
1: I think so. There a, a Kaisers in like Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area, but I don't think they get into even Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at all, as far yeah. as I know. Well, and Geisinger
0: barely gets into Philly, and then their health plan gets into Philly, but their uh, delivery doesn't. Let's get to the tech side. So four healthcare moves from Microsoft. This was posted two hours ago. So you had no chance to read it. I love yeah. this, I'm like it's so like I'm a quiz, quiz at the <laughs> end of the day. You ready? Uh, so four healthcare moves from Microsoft. Number one, Microsoft is reportedly developing a privacy focused version of ChatGPT for healthcare providers. The product, which is reportedly aimed at preventing data leaks from sensitive industries could be announced by the end of the quarter. That's pretty interesting. And actually I talked to a CIO today that is actually in conversations with Microsoft about this because they they want to use it. They really, well, first of all, they acknowledge it's ChatGPT is being used in their health system. Yeah. They're educating their users. They're putting some guardrails around it and that kind of stuff. But what they'd really like to do is they'd like to take ChatGPT to medical school and not only medical school, but medical school on their healthcare data, and then essentially utilize the tool to, I don't know, do all sorts of things. I'm hearing some interesting use cases. And one of the interesting parts of the conversation with the CIO is he said, Bill, if I gave them 10 use cases, it would be a disservice to our institution because just letting them use it they're coming back to me, and it's like I get like two or three every week of new use cases. Like, hey, have you thought of using it this way? And so people are—they're getting a hold of this thing and looking at it, and going, "This is pretty cool." So Microsoft's saying, "Hey, we understand the needs of your industry, privacy. We're going to bake something that's a little bit more of a, a closed system, so that it's not there's no risk associated with it." What do you think of that one?
1: I think it's interesting. I keep, sorry, I read all these articles on chat GBT and then I keep pulling up the, uh, the hype cycle diagram and being like, <laughs> okay, here's, okay, here's where we are. And then, so like, what are we like six months away from the trough of disillusionment, or a year away from there? Uh, and maybe it's obviously moving very fast. So maybe that's a shallower trough than Typically, you see in that cycle, or maybe we just get through it quickly. But I think uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see like what are the boots on the ground or the low-hanging fruit that we really find for it. And I I feel like it's some of the things I haven't heard a ton about are around like after visit summaries, patient education stuff like that, where you can have it kind of within guardrails. So guardrails. So it's still gonna be hey, it needs to be about this diagnosis. But then if we can have put this ABS in language that a 5 year olds going to understand or yeah. do this for a, a millennial who's a visual learner and have kind of like a just infinite possibilities, but then kind of still being within that safety net of, we know basically what it's going to say. It's going to say it different ways, but it's not this black box of spitting out potentially anything.
0: Well, there, there was a, an article written last week. I think it was in JAMA. And it was a bunch of the health systems doing a study and they threw a whole bunch of messages at inbox messages at it and said write the responses. And so they took the physician written ones and they took the ChatGPT ones and they essentially assigned a score for it around empathy and quality of the yeah. response. And as you would imagine, the empathy score was higher. I know it's hard to believe that the computer's empathy score was higher because you can tell ChatGPT respond with empathy and yeah. it knows what words are empathetic kind of thing. So and a, a doctor's moving at a very fast pace. And so a lot of times there'll be shorter messages and shorter messages sometimes are seen as curt or at least not, I don't know, not caring or whatever. And it doesn't take ChatGPT anything to put a couple of caring words in there. So empathy scores were higher. And the, uh, oddly enough, the, the quality of the responses was higher. Yeah. Uh, But at the end of the day, they're going into a draft folder, right? We're not at a point where we're dispensing medical advice through chat GPT. I hope no one's hearing that. And so it's going into a folder. It will be human mediated, which one goes out, which one doesn't go out. What needs to be modified and that kind of thing, but it's... But I do think that's where
1: some of the use cases are probably going to be. It's like the things we have now that are basically rules engine driven. So like the, what's going into the AVS or what patient education is getting assigned. Like, I think there's going to be a middle ground there where it's still within that rules engine of making sure that this is the content, but then having that then go through chat GPT. And then maybe that's where it hits that healthcare specific checkbox of we need to be 100% yeah. sure so this is accurate and safe. And so it's not just not just kind of like rephrasing a note where it could get it wrong, but saying like, we already basically know what we're trying to say, yeah. say it in a particular manner with empathy or whatever the case may be. Yeah.
0: Well, let me give you the other three. So Microsoft's partnering with the HR vendor Epic Systems to develop an integrated generative AI into the HR software. They're doing the inbox thing. They're also doing a front end, a natural language front end to slicer dicer is what they're doing. Number three was Microsoft said through its Teams EHR connector that organizations using Epic or Cerner EHRs can launch telehealth appointments directly within their systems. And then number four, on April 12th, Microsoft rolled out its new cloud capabilities for payers that focuses on unlocking unstructured data for better member outreach and care management. Microsoft, is moving in the healthcare direction big time. I mean, they've always been a big time player. When people say to me, oh, is Microsoft? I'm like, no, Microsoft's always been a big time player. Like one of my largest contracts I signed every year yeah. was the Microsoft yeah. contract as a CIO. But what do you take from this? What do you take when somebody's asking you about Microsoft's intentions and where they're going and how, how they're going to serve healthcare moving forward? What's your response to that?
1: I I think they see it's a big market. It's always been a big market. I think we've seen them even before this, just like in the way they were structuring contracts, you probably saw this, like pushing clients to Azure. Like we've seen a lot of clients over the past couple of years start looking at those contracts and realize like, oh, I've got all this. I'm already paying for all this. And so they're starting to get market they really already had the market share but now they're kind of stealing it from others so i think i think you'll continue continue to see that growth and obviously they're right at the front with chat gpt here so that's going to keep them pretty hot for a while i think and be attractive both to the health systems the payers and then also for the technologies like epic and cerner who want to be associated with that
0: yeah let's go to the next article this is from april 14th these are the 10 healthcare statistics that matter most in 2023. I'm just gonna throw these out, short comment from both of us. I'm gonna combine the first two. About 30% of the rural hospitals are at risk of closing in the immediate or near future. And number two, a wave of hospital and healthcare facility bankruptcies is expected in 2023. It's interesting because I'm hearing that the financial crisis is abating a little bit. The cost of traveling nurses has gone down. They've curbed those costs. They're not making, I don't want to paint the picture that these health systems are making a ton of money, but they're returning back to some semblance of normal and break even at least is one of the things I'm hearing. But I have heard this, rural health systems are struggling. They didn't have a big nest egg to really rely on. And at best, their nest egg is gone because it's been a tough year and a half, two years. At worst, they're they're closing down services and those kinds of things. All right, so one and two. Any thoughts on those two?
1: I agree. I think it's still going to be a painful 2023 for almost every health system that I talk to, at least. They're making the cuts now, but I think see. C- the light at the end of the tunnel headed into their next fiscal year, but it's still like got to get through this fiscal year. And I don't, I think you're exactly right. Like, I don't think that the small rural hospitals, they don't have anywhere they can cut. Like they're already lean as they can possibly be. There's nothing more they can do. And so it's like, I think there's a question of, can you get through 2023 where maybe you're back to just barely at break-even in 2024 and beyond, but if you can't, If you don't have the nest egg, like you said, or anywhere you can cut to get there, then you're kind of in trouble for the next eight months. Yeah.
0: Next one. So soon more Americans will get their health care from government than from private firms. And they're essentially saying Medicare and Medicaid. Next one. Medical costs for the average U.S. family have risen every year since the year 2000. And numbers are pretty significant 10.6% more out of pocket in 2022 for the average employee that's from stat news are we going to see for the patient for the employer are we going to see the cost of care come down or do you think it's probably going to remain stagnant or even go up
1: i can't imagine anything that would make it go down short of additional large scale reform at this point best case scenario maybe someday it matches the pace of inflation instead of running it but that's still not a great that's still not a great place to be yeah. The use of remote patient monitoring tools is becoming more widespread.
0: For 2021, it was 15.1%, 22, 17%, 23, 20%. And they're projecting in 24, it's going to go up to 23%. So we're seeing that grow. We're seeing that grow a little bit and that's us remote patient monitoring users as a percentage of the population. So we're seeing more and more of these tools. Are you seeing that in in the work that you guys are doing? You seeing more remote patient monitoring?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of systems are doing more with it and doing some cool stuff. I mean, it ties back to the nursing shortage. And if we can have fewer nurses looking at more patients more of the time, then that's obviously a cost savings and a labor savings. And I think, I mean, it, it seems like most of the folks I talk to are doing something and I'd say reasonably mature at this point, too. Like, it's we're not in a pilot phase anymore. It's where we've got stood up units and folks in command centers monitoring.
0: Yeah. And the devices have gotten better. They're more sophisticated. They're easier to use. Let's see a nurse shortage, 275,000 additional nurses will be needed within the next eight years. Drug overdoses are down slightly. We've got an aging population, which we know just sheer demographics and probably heard of a few mental health care statistics, and it's not a rosy picture. One in five Americans suffers from mental illness. Almost six in 10 people with mental illness get no treatment or medication so those are the top 10 statistics that uh, that this article anyway says are important to keep an eye on let's go to the next one let's see it's kind of interesting too
1: because if like if you read all the hype around chat gpt or ai in general right it's all talking about how ai is gonna ai is gonna fix healthcare in the u.s but yeah it can certainly be a tool in most of those areas that you just went through but it's not fixing the some of the fundamental stuff that's going on there
0: We're going through the hype cycle longer than I anticipated going through it. I think we're going to see different applications of the hype cycle. I think once we really get into healthcare, we're going to notice it's not as accurate as we want it to be in certain ways. We've got to train these more narrow models, uh, but we're just not there yet. And so we might still be in the hype cycle another three months from now because people are finding the edge use cases where it is really helping them to be more efficient as an administrator or caregiver. And so, uh, but man, it the hype, I almost wanna like make a new hype cycle chart that starts on one page and you put like three pages on top of it. It's just <laughs> you know, the chat GPT hype cycle. Let's see, public health emergency ends on May 11th. Here's what will change and this is, Too many things to read, let me see. Uninsured individuals may no longer have access to free COVID-19 vaccines. Insurers will no longer be required to provide access to free COVID tests. Medicaid will only reimburse COVID-19 treatments provided, approved by the FDA. Large portion of Medicare coverage of telehealth will remain the same through 2024 due to the legislation that was passed, which will include the telehealth flexibilities the 20% increase in Medicare reimbursements to hospitals will end, which could in turn inflate patient care costs. Providers could face higher penalties for accidental HIPAA violations that occurred due to telehealth care. Providers will be more restricted on treating patients in other states via telehealth, and reimbursement rates will change for telehealth with some telehealth visits depending on the insurance provider. So that's, that's right around the corner, May 11th. We knew this was coming. Actually, we've been talking about this coming for over, <laughs> over a year. So it's not like we, we didn't know. This should not be, come as any huge surprise to people. I think the thing I'm most excited about is the telehealth experiment that we've just done over the last three years or two and a half years. We now have a ton of data on what works and what doesn't. And I think there's an opportunity here to rethink the reimbursements for Medicare, Medicaid, even commercial payers and saying, hey, I think we can drive some efficiencies by really implementing it in certain areas. Because we can no longer say, well, we're afraid of fraud. We're afraid of this. We did a two and a half year experiment. We have tons of data. And I, I just feel like now we should have a good foundation by which to make decisions and really take telehealth to the next level in a way that's very pragmatic. Any it'd thoughts be, on that?
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the commercial payers do on this. They'll have all that evidence, obviously like a piece of it's, what's the data say, a piece what? of it's also, what's so, the most problem? And the problem is that a healthcare
0: system, I want complete, I want full reimbursement, like as if yeah. they came in the front door. Yeah, That's just from a commercial payer standpoint, it's not pragmatic. You're just sitting there going, wait, time out." you you do a 10 minute call with them or you have to use utilize this facility in theory not only in theory in practice that 10 minute call should be reimbursed at a lower rate than them coming to your office
1: yeah but you still got to run the hospital <laughs> the hospital still costs the same whether the patients there or sitting on home on the phone
0: yeah it's true it's true so have you done telehealth visits and what are your thoughts on yeah, so
1: we were pregnant during covid so we did several of our checkups for that that way i mean are you going (laughs) to
0: announce that you delivered your baby via telehealth
1: (laughs) not that i'm not that brave (laughs) not that brave that seems like a good good call for an in-person visit so we but we did a bunch of our probably two or three of our checkups at least that way of just kind of hey here's your test results or how are you feeling how are you feeling kind of that kind of stuff and uh, i mean worked well like we i'm excited to not go sit in traffic for 20 minutes and then wait in a waiting room for 25 more minutes at least and to have the same conversation i think we actually we did one recently too for our now our successfully born daughter for an ear infection which was great because otherwise you're going into the doctor to basically hear what you already know like yeah she's pointed at her ear she's got all the symptoms it's pretty pretty clear so being able to jump on with teledoc or, or whatever is a pretty good way to go yeah
0: in fact, our, I've said this on the show before, our commercial payer for my company encourages people to go to the payer website and see one of the payer physicians, because obviously if I don't go to the health system, it does reduce the overall cost to them because they don't have to pay for anybody and they recognize the, the savings. Yeah. By the way, this is an article that's the reason for the hype. Fast Company, how AI can be used to cut $1 trillion out of healthcare. Fast Company telling people, hey, we're going to be able to cut one trillion. So the expectation here is we're going to cut $1 trillion out of a $4 trillion. That's a quarter of the cost. So the next <laughs> time you go to the doctor, it should cost a quarter less. Yeah. Uh, and- They're still going to be using fax machines, but Chachi, do <laughs> everything else. Yes, but the machine learning can read the faxes as they come in, interpret and, and do all sorts of things. And yeah. by the way, that's actually true. It, some of the stuff they're demonstrating is the computer vision linked with chat GPT that essentially
1: can read a fax. Yeah. That seems like a kind of a mind-boggling workaround of, you know, <laughs> it's, it's probably an easier way to dump it doesn't involve paper being printed so we can scan it back into the back
0: into the computer. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. I am excited about our webinars this year. They have been going very well. What I've done is I've gone out and talked to people in the community and said, what works in webinars? And they came back and said, look, this is what we want. We want a webinar that is not product centric, it's really focused in on the problems of healthcare and we want people on there that are actually solving those problems. And so we have done that and the response has been fantastic this year. We have another webinar coming up. It is the future of care spaces. Where care is being delivered is changing rapidly. Even the care spaces within the hospital themselves are changing, technology is being added and different types of technology, AI, obviously, computer vision and whatnot is changing that modality as well as what's going on in the home and whatnot. So, we're going to have that webinar on June 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We usually have it on the first Thursday, happens to be a little too close to my anniversary. So, we're going to do June 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, future of care spaces. We would love to have you be a part of it. If you are interested in being there, go ahead and hit our website, top right hand corner. We have a card, you can click on that card and go ahead and fill out the form and get registered today. We would love to have you join us. We look forward to seeing you there. Now back to our show. Let's see, last article, let's do this. New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, getting generative AI right, rapid government action combined with careful use case selection can minimize healthcare risks posed by generative artificial intelligence and put it on a successful path. Let's see, rapidly computer AI will impact healthcare. The na- nature of its impact, including its positive and negative effects will be determined by a combination of market forces, clinician acceptance and government action. Pragmatically focusing development on low risk, high impact capabilities is important. Multiple government agencies are in a position to incentivize this focus and mitigate likely, the likelihood of harm. It's interesting and they go on to, clinicians will reject general AI, if it harms a patient, produces flawed content, or does not fit easily into their workflow, which is the same for every technology we've implemented for the last decade, right? I mean, it's our decade for forever. It's got to be accurate. It cannot do harm, period. And and it's got to fit into their workflow. So uh, if you were coaching, if you're sitting in front of a CIO right now, and they're saying, hey, how do we get in front of this thing? Like every day, somebody else in the house is subscribing to me and saying, hey, I'm using ChatGPT to do this or do this. How do you get in front of this? What are some of the things you would you tell a CIO of a health system right now?
1: Yeah, I think that you mentioned at the beginning with that, I think it was the Microsoft announcement about setting up that privacy restricted version of ChatGPT. Like that's got to be the first thing, right? Is like We know people are using it today, so let's make sure they're doing it safely and you know, it's the same thing with text messages and things like that like we know they're sending text messages about patient care and HIPAA protected stuff HIPAA restricted stuff so let's make sure that we're giving them a pathway to do it the right way and then at least when if I'm saying to chat GPT hey write my soap note about a patient with these these diagnoses or whatever that at least they're doing it in a way that's not going to backfire and results in a breach or or anything like that. So I think that's got to be probably ground zero. And then I think from there, you want to try to probably set up a task force of some kind, set up a structure and process for folks to come through and say, hey, here's a use case I want to vet out and make sure they're doing it again within of you as a CIO and understanding what are they trying to do, that they're doing it the right way, that they're doing it with support, that if there's going to be... Integration, things like that, that they're asking for, they can be scoped and budgeted appropriately. Otherwise, folks are going to be doing all this on the server that lives under their desk, that classic example. So, I think those are probably the two tough things I'm thinking about. Yeah. I,
0: again, talking to the CIO today, and our actually CIO yesterday, and they were saying they they actually caught because they're using a secure browser within Mm. their environment. They actually caught some different use cases where they were putting PHI and whatnot into it. And he said, having that kind of tool in place to capture, because you really shouldn't have a way from your clinical workstation to exfiltrate data. Yeah. It's like, I mean, that should be the most controlled environment you have anywhere. And so email, you should know if PHI is going across there, you should know if they're putting into the browser, you should be able to see it. And if they're putting it in the chat to PDT, yeah. you should be able to see it. So they said, Hey, we found it. We're able to educate people and that kind of stuff. So the guardrails are so important on this. Yeah. Of Just don't let people hurt themselves. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. So, I mean,
1: so if you don't do that, the people are going to be doing it anyway. It's like, you, you can't just turn a blind eye because you're, You're in trouble if you don't look at it and you're in trouble if you look at it so you got to look at it and put those guardrails in place
0: yeah it's interesting because i think we all recognize the world's changing as we watch right now i mean you just sit in front of chat gpt and say hey here's the dialogue from a conversation with a patient yeah tell you who the patient is or anything like that write the soap note i'm pretty sure it could write this i haven't done this yet but i'm pretty sure it could write the soap note
1: yeah I'll be right,
0: I'll bet you're right. Well, let's see, I've got a tab open. I have a tab open at <laughs> all times. <laughs>
1: mean,
0: well, and that's what I'm finding more and more when I talk to people, one of the questions I ask them is, it's like, hey, do you have ChatGPT open on your browser? And yeah. almost everybody says yes. It really has become pretty pervasive. So I think we're looking at a new way of working. This thing has been adopted by hundred over 100 million users in the shortest yeah. time frame in history, in the history of the internet. And it's going to be interesting to see. I was reading an article yesterday, or not yesterday, last week, and it, and I know the author and I'm reading the article and I'm reading it and I'm going, that person did not write that article.
1: I read something on LinkedIn just today that I was like, I'm going to get to the end and it's going to be like the punchline is this is written by ChatGPT. And it never said it, but I'm like 95% sure.
0: <laughs> well, and that becomes one of the things. I mean, you have so many of these new tools, and you have like mid journey version five, and whatever. It's like, how do you know an image is really an image? And we're going to start doing it with videos. How do you know a video is really a video? How do you know an article was really written by that person? And I don't know, I don't know that we're going to know anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and someday
1: it'll probably be a differentiator. It'll be like you've got real people writing. Like once ChatGPT and its successors are widely adopted, then you're going to be able to differentiate yourself on not being AI.
0: Yeah. And right now we're differentiating ourselves based on prompts because I'm I'm teaching my team how to use it, and they'll come back with some stuff, and I'll be like, Nah, it, no, you need to be more specific with the prompt. Like write it in a fifth grade level, or write it in this form or tell it who it should be. You're a professional writer or you're writing a dissertation. So use that tone or that kind of language. It it can, and it does, but it's really interesting. What
1: what do you use it for, like once you have it open, what's kind of your go-to use case? Well,
0: I will tell you what will happen. So you and I just had this conversation. I will give it to my team. And what I'm teaching them how to do is we've been generating the transcript with AI for a long time. We have a tool that we drop the video in. It takes the audio and it turns it into text. Cool. What they're doing now is they take the text and they drop it into chat GPT and they say, chat GPT, here is the transcript from Jeff Blanding and Bill Russell having a conversation on health IT. And so I yeah. read it all in and then we go, write the show notes. Show notes should have four sentences, summary, five bullet points, and two quotes, two or three quotes. Right. And it goes, there it is now. Again, what I keep telling my team is it's it generates and we have to review it. Are these the best quotes? Are they the best? We're not trying to, you can't let it, you can't get become lazy with it. We, we are still smarter than it is. It can write better than me at this point. But anyway, so it'll do the show notes. Then we could say, hey, social media posts, it could potentially write those. There's some things we haven't experimented with, but we could do a lot. That's a pretty powerful tool. Hey, we're over. I've, we're just rambling now. I'm sorry about that, man. I know, <laughs> hey, I, know, I, I know you have other stuff going on. Jeff, always great to catch up with you. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me, Bill. Good to talk to you.
0: And that is the news. If I were a CIO today, I think what I would do is I'd have every team member listening to a show just like this one and trying to have conversations with them after the show about what they've learned and what we can apply to our health system. If you want to support This Week Health, one of the ways you can do that is you can recommend our channels to a peer or to one of your staff members. We have two channels, This Week Health Newsroom and This Week Health Conference. You can check them out anywhere you listen to podcasts, which is a lot of places. Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, you name it, you can find it there. You can also find us on YouTube, and of course, you can go to our website, thisweekhealth.com. And we want to thank our Newsday partners, again, a lot of them, and we appreciate their participation in this show. Cedar Sinai Accelerator, ClearSense, CrowdStrike, Digital Scientists, Optimum, Pure Storage, SureTest, Towsight, Lumion, and VMware, who have invested in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.